0: Thank you for that bill. That was great. Five years ago, America was viciously attacked by evil enemies who seemingly would commit any atrocity in the hopes of slamming the door shut on the American dream. Today, the door is still open. and The dream is still embraced by millions of people around the world. Our governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, an immigrant from Austria, made these statements, and I sort of put them together. He says, I've seen firsthand coming here with empty pockets but full of dreams full of desire, full of the will to succeed. But with the opportunities that I had, I could make it. The successes I have achieved in bodybuilding, motion pictures, and business would not have been possible without the generosity of the American people and the freedom here to pursue your dreams. Everything I have, my career, my success, my family, I owe to America. I believe with all my heart that America remains the great idea that inspires the world. It is a privilege to be born here. It is an honor to become a citizen here. It is a gift to raise your family here, to vote here, and to live here. The inscription, which appears on the base of the Statue of Liberty, says it well. And I know you're all familiar with it. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, the tempest-tossed, to me. And in those last words, I lift up my lamp beside the golden door. I lift up my lamp beside the golden door. The buildings in the picture are gone, but the golden door is still open. However, all the gold that is accumulated by those who walk through the door, all the successes, all the bodybuilding achievements, the movie star fame, the vast business fortunes, and the power and privilege of being even a head of state, never last for more than one lifetime. Eventually, we must give up what we've gained. Eventually, we will depart this world as we entered it, with nothing. Everything this world has given us, we will leave behind. That includes my Harley Davidson. It includes this lousy body. It includes a lot of things that, like you, I hold dear at this time. Sometimes even call them heirlooms, but one day I'm going to leave them behind. This morning I want to speak to you about another open door of opportunity, an eternal door that opens to eternal opportunity. It's not a golden door, it's an eternal door. Those who walk through this door and lay hold of the opportunities that are provided on the other side of this door can hold on to what they have gained. Even aging and death cannot take it away. They can take it with them. They won't have to leave anything that they've gained behind this door, behind. One of the best pictures that I know of in the Word of God of this eternal opportunity is of the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to a small, insignificant church located in what is today known as eastern Turkey, pardon me, western Turkey. It was a, at the time that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke these words. It was a church that existed in western Turkey and which was called the Church of Philadelphia. And what our Lord says to this church is indelibly inscribed for us in his written word, the Bible, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And particularly this morning, we want to look at chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. 7 to 13. And I'm going to read this entire section to you, although I've only put up there what we're going to be looking at this morning. And the Lord Jesus says this, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, John, write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it, for you have little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I've read all these words to you this morning from Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. However... This morning, we're going to focus primarily on what he said in verses 7 to 9 regarding just why he has opened this door leading to eternal opportunity for this church. Why did he open this door leading to eternal opportunity for this church? Then next week, we're going to focus primarily on what it means for those in this church to fully lay hold of that eternal opportunity. That he's provided by opening this door, including just what they will gain if they do lay hold of it. What will they gain in this world and in the world to come? And that'll be next week. So what did the Lord Jesus Christ, what did he or why did he might be a better way to put it? Why did he open this door for this church in the first place at this time? To answer that question, we need to know something about this church in the context of the other six churches to whom our Lord also speaks in Revelation 2 and 3. We also need to know something about the door which has been opened for them, and then we will try to answer the question as to why he specifically opened the door for this church at this time. So to begin with, what do we know about this ancient city of Philadelphia? Philadelphia was a tiny little city named after Attalus II who remained loyal to his brother in spite of Roman attempts to try to divide the two of them. And so the Romans and those around him gave him the nickname Philadelphus because he loved his brother and remained loyal to him. And so this city, whether it was started by Attalus II or his brother, we're not sure, but whatever, it was named after him, his nickname, Philadelphia. However, it was a strategic city located at the other extremity, the upper extremity of a long valley that opened back from the sea. Let me see if I can get this up here figure out how to do this. Which way does this thing go? Oh, here we go. One of these days I'll figure this out. I know I've got it, but I ain't seeing anything here. Just ain't seeing it. Well, anyhow. You want to show me? (laughs) Thank you. It wouldn't work, huh? Well, let's don't take any more time because I'm going to run out. You see, Philadelphia's in the middle of the screen, and what you have is Philadelphia sits right at the foot of a of a mountain, and there we go. Okay, and um, let's get the. Right uh... oh. Okay, I got it. Just stay in one place. Okay, there's Philadelphia. To the east was a long, basically following this river all the way down through Smyrna, the and uh, uh, Ephesus. It had easy access to ports. So this was all fairly flat. But right here, it sat at the foot of a of a mountain. Now the mountain wasn't that high, although we're going to see a picture of it in just a second. But beyond the mountain was a plateau that led to all of this area, which had lots of cities as well. Let's see the next slide here. OK, this is a picture of Philadelphia, modern Philadelphia today. This little hill here is the hill that it sits at the foot of. But then you'll notice that you go right up through here. And then right beyond these mountains, it opens out into a flat plateau, which is basically what we would call Western Turkey, Asia Minor. Lots of cities, lots of opportunities. And so the point I'm trying to make here is that as you went uh, east along the main road, you went up into the mountains, onto the plateau, and it was created, the city was created, to become a strategic location for spreading Greek culture. Basically, it was a an opportunity for, as far as Attalus was concerned, or his brother, they were looking at this as a city that had strategic importance for spreading Greek culture and Greek language, Greek customs, Greek ideas to the Orient. And the Orient, in their mind, was what we would call Middle East today. And so that's where they were going with this. One of the foremost historians of uh, this ancient period... Uh, William Ramsey writes this, It was a missionary city from the beginning, founded to promote a certain unity of spirit, customs, and loyalty within the realm of the Greek-speaking world. The apostle of Hellenism was the city with the idea that it would take Greek customs and Greek ideas into an oriental land. Now, that was the thinking in a secular mindset as to why the city existed. It provided an opportunity to spread Greek Greek culture, Greek ideas, Greek customs. But our Lord spoke of it as a door which He had opened, not to spread Greek culture and Greek thinking, but to spread His truth and the gospel of the grace of God. Notice what He says there. He says, See, behold, Jesus says, I have set before you, the church in Philadelphia, an open door and no one can shut it. The world has set the city of Philadelphia there and says, we've given you an open door for reaching the world with our culture. But Jesus is saying, I have set you there as a church and I've opened the door for you to spread the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Frequently in the New Testament, we read about these very churches that were being established by the Apostle Paul and by other apostles in this area that we call Asia Minor, or Western Turkey today. The phrase is often used that of an open door to express an opportunity to minister the Word of God and the gospel of the grace of God in these new regions. Notice what Paul says in Acts 14. From there they sailed, Paul and Silas sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the works which they had completed. And when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 16, we read, For a great and effective door has opened to me, the apostle Paul, and there are many adversaries. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me by the Lord. Colossians 4, meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for his word to speak the mystery of Christ, which I am also in chains. The open door in the early church was clearly a symbol of opportunity to minister the word of God and spread the gospel of the grace of God to people living in villages and towns and cities all over the then known ancient world. This kind of opportunity was not limited by the constraints of the world in this life. This was an opportunity Not to make a better life for ourselves or accumulate wealth or build a a great business or to make some kind of a a statement with our life. This was not an opportunity to carve out for ourselves some, some reserves for fun and relaxation. This was an opportunity to invest time and effort and money and resources in impacting people and being instrumental in transforming how they think and live. This was an opportunity to be involved in what God was doing in building local temples all over the world at that time. But these local temples were not made of bricks and stone and mortar. They were made of living stones. People who would meet together to worship the true God and the power of the Holy Spirit. These were not the kind of temples that would one day dot dot as ruins of once stone buildings that now dot Muslim countries all over the Middle East. These were temples of living stones that continue to exist at this very moment in the presence of God where those people have gone on to praise Him. Now, can you think of a greater opportunity? Friends, there's only one thing that we will see in eternity that's here right now. I won't see this pulpit. I won't even see this this physical Bible. What I'll see is I'm going to see you. And you're going to see me. The one thing we're going to see in eternity are people. And when it comes to investing our time and our effort and our resources, there's no better investment than working alongside our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God and bringing the light of Christ's Word To people living in darkness. This is the kind of investment opportunity our Lord Jesus Christ had opened up for the church at Philadelphia. It was not enough to simply live in a city that was strategically located to reach the world. The Lord Jesus Christ must use his power and authority to open the door into these communities where the people are in darkness. Furthermore, it seems clear that our Lord Jesus Christ delights in opening doors for his people to minister when they are ready and prepared to lay hold of that opportunity that awaits them on the other side of the door. While the other churches in Asia Minor struggled during the first century with questions of love and loyalty, as in the case of Ephesus, or with survival as in the case of Smyrna, or with the presence and influence of false teachers as at Pergamos, or with outright spiritual adultery and deadness as in the case of Thyatira and Sardis. It was the church of Philadelphia that was prepared for the open door our Lord would be pleased to open. This was the church that was ready. It was the only church other than, I guess, Smyrna, you could say, because they were struggling just to survive. Our Lord did not criticize them, but this was the one church that seemed to stand out as a shining example of what Jesus Christ was looking for. There was no condemnation of the church at Philadelphia. The Lord doesn't want his church to suffer, but sometimes suffering is necessary and happens. But when a church is not suffering... What our Lord wants for his church is for it to be like the church at Philadelphia. Let's read Revelation chapter 7, or pardon me, chapter 3 again, verses 7 to 9. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your work. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. The bottom line is that those who made up the church at Philadelphia you had the right stuff. They had the kind of qualities the Lord was looking for as He surveyed His family of sons and daughters. He was looking for the kind of people he found at Philadelphia who were ready to step up to the plate and do business and to make a difference in the world. This is not unlike when an employer in the world promotes an employee to a promising position, a position of opportunity to advance in the company. That employer usually does it because he's surveyed all of his employees and he's looking for employees with certain qualities that he possesses himself and which he admires and respects and values in promising employees. It might be industry or reliability or ambition or loyalty or integrity or whatever. So when an employer finds an employee with these qualities, he promotes that employee to a new position where he can have greater opportunity. Neil's not here, so let me just mention him a moment. I have great love and respect and support for Neil. And I recall this summer that there were some people that expressed concern to me that he's so young. And do you really feel that he's ready? And, and is this really the time? And I remained resolute in my support. And I want to explain to you why. Neil possesses, in my estimation, three very crucial qualities that I find precious little of in the pastor as CEO world today, three things that I believe will overshadow whatever immaturity he may have at his young age. He has spiritual integrity, number one. Number two, he's committed to the word of God. And number three, he has a strong faith in the Lord. To me, those are winning ingredients when it comes to being an effective pastor. It's not unlike the qualities that our Lord is looking for as He looks over His family of sons and daughters who've been born again. We're not talking here about non Christians, friends. As He looks over the Christian community and over those who believe in Him, He's looking also for people, believers, children, sons and daughters who are ready to step forward with Him to make a difference in the world. And notice how He highlights these qualities with the church at Philadelphia. Even as he introduces himself to them, he calls attention to three things about himself, which also speak volumes about what he is looking for in his people before he opens the door. Three things he has found in the church at Philadelphia. First, our Lord Jesus Christ refers to himself as he who is holy. He who is holy. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy. When he refers to himself as he who is holy, he is speaking of spiritual integrity. That he stands, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, he stands apart from this world and everything in it that has been defiled by sin and evil. The word holy fundamentally has the idea to be set apart or separate. In the world, we are conditioned to tolerate a little sin, a little wrongdoing. Especially if it is born out of a little pride, which we call human nature, and that's just being human. But Jesus stood apart from this. We learn from the Gospels that as you study His very life, there was no sin found in Him whatsoever. And that He was like light in the darkness. And people didn't like Him simply because... He was too good to be true. The brilliance of his character was just too blinding for those who were living in darkness. We're told that in Jesus there was no sin. In his person, He was referred to as the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. Holiness defined the very person of Jesus Christ. Holiness defined his whole life. His life stood apart from every other life on this earth. If Jesus were in this room, we would immediately know it. His life stood out and he stood apart. And Jesus values holiness in the life of men, the lives of men and women, and in the life of the church. And what he found at Philadelphia was that they did not deny his name. By their works, they were holding up the name, the person and character. The name stands for the person and character of Jesus Christ before the world. It wasn't that they never did anything bad or wrong but that they came freely to the light of Jesus Christ and when that light exposed their sin and their wrongdoing, they quickly confessed it and forsook it and owned up to it. As I get older, one of the things that concerns me deeply is that how few people seem willing today to say, you know, I was wrong. I've sinned, Father. Forgive me. What I thought about What I did, what I said was wrong. Forgive me. We're not quick to deal with the sin in our lives. Let me just share with you something. Most of you know I ride a jet ski with some of the guys here in the church. A jet ski has an impeller, this little thing that turns about 7,000 revolutions in a minute. And it just blows the water out the back end and it shoves the boat forward. But it takes, once you get something in that impeller, it just shuts it down. Now, here's something that we got in the impeller. That shut it down big time. But I want to show you a few of the other things that shut it down. You know, here's, here's a, it looks like to me, I can't figure out what it is. It's a piece of paper, plastic. It's a, oh, it's a baggie. A little baggy. That shut it down. Here's something that shut it down, just a, a little piece of, uh, looks like a tubing, a part of it. And then here's a little piece of plastic, sort of like milk carton type plastic. And then there's this, just, just this tiny little string. That shut it down. And lastly, there's this piece of styrofoam. No, I guess that's a bandage, just a tiny little bandage. That shut it down. Now, my point is this. Adultery will clearly shut down our lives, friends. And we know it's wrong and we have to extract it or we'll never move forward for Jesus Christ. But what happens with some of these other things? This shut us down. But some of these other things, you can still move forward, but you're blowing a lot of air through the chute and you're not going fast. And if you know your pastor you know that going fast is not fun. And so you immediately pull over to the shore and you begin to dig around and find out what it is that's slowing this thing down and making it difficult just to keep that mo- boat moving forward. And finally you find this? You've got to be kidding. You might liken this to a heart that's just not right with God. And maybe the way that we are relating to one another is something. There's just not something right there in our heart. And we need to go to God and say, I was wrong for the way I, I felt in my heart and thought in my mind. Forgive me, Lord. We've got to pull that out of the chute, so to speak, so that we can move forward. The church at Philadelphia had a keen sense of movement toward what God wanted them to do. And when there was something that seemed to be slowing them down, hindering their movement forward, they got busy and dealt with it. They found out what it was, they talked it out, they confessed it, and they moved on. The church at Philadelphia took seriously the importance of dealing with sin and evil in their lives, not in order to be saved, They were already saved. They were already going to heaven. But they weren't going to go forward and be of any use to God unless they dealt with that sin in their life. And because they were concerned about sin in their lives and sin in their church, the Lord used them and opened a door for them. The Church of Philadelphia was a committed church, committed to holiness. It was a church that stood apart from the world that then existed, and it stood apart from the Christian world as well. You see, aren't you making a little bit too much of this? Think about it. Look at the character of the church at Philadelphia, read your Bible about it, and then go and read what it says about the other churches. The church at Ephesus had lost her love for Christ. The church at Pergamos was looking to see how far she could go and still be called a Christian. The church at Thyatira prided itself or I shouldn't say that, committed spiritual adultery and made a mockery of God's holiness. The church at Sardis prided itself on being alive, and yet the Bible says it had a form of godliness, but it was dead. The church at Laodicea was rich and influential, but Christ was so unhappy with that church, He said, I'm going to spew it out of my mouth. But the small and significant church at Philadelphia was like a lighthouse in the ancient world. Even in the midst of the other more highly regarded churches, more powerful, more strategically located, more cultural, more educated, and so on. It was the church at Philadelphia that stood apart, showing just what it meant to hold up the holy name of Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ opened the door of opportunity for the church of Philadelphia first because it was a church that held up his holy name. It was a church that regarded highly holiness. Second, because it was a church that kept his word. It's a church committed to his word. Notice how the Lord Jesus Christ, again, introducing himself to the church, says our Lord Jesus Christ refers to himself as he who is true. And to the angel of the church at Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true. In the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth. He himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In the world, we find it normal to tell untruths. In fact, even in the Christian world, we tell white lies. That's a favorite. We call them white lies because we're not trying to hurt anybody. They just aren't true, what we're saying. And yet, Jesus is making it clear here that He is he who is true. Nothing ever false came from his lips. And his life matched his words. There was no hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is always one of the major problems that all of us here face today. Our Lord knew that there was one thing that can liberate people from sin and the power of sin in their lives, and that is the truth. He told those who would be His disciples that they would know the truth and the truth would set them free. The truth liberates people from from themselves and their sin. Truth, not trickery, not games, not psychological games that we play with ourselves. It's the truth that will liberate us from ourselves. Because often we are our own worst enemy. Some people have written the book on how to destroy their life. We have a guy at Ohio State, Clarice Uh, Claret, and just how to flush your life down the toilet. He's written the book. In the outworking of the wisdom and purpose of Jesus Christ, only men and women who are committed to holding up the Word of God, to keeping the Word of God, to making it the centerpiece of their ministry, only these kind of people can really be involved in the liberating work of liberating others from sin. And the power of sin over their lives. In the ancient city of Philadelphia, Jesus found a church that kept his word. He said to the church of Philadelphia, you have kept my word. It was a church that built its life and ministry upon the foundation of his word. He did not find a church that was founded and nourished. It was not a church that was founded and nourished by an apostle. Or the apostles like the church at Ephesus. And this is an apostolic church. It was not a church with vast numbers like they had at Pergamos. It was not a church with well-organized programs to minister to people's inner spirit as they had at Thyatira. He did not find a church with highly developed traditions and carefully reasoned theologies, but a spiritually dead church at Sardis. He did not find in Philadelphia a church with lots of money and power and influence like at Laodicea. He just found a simple church, a church that constantly monitored its life and its ministry in the light of the Word of God. This was a church he would provide an open door, leading to eternal opportunity. The Word of God is what it takes to transform the lives of people living in darkness. It's what it takes to make disciples. And Jesus says, I'm going to use churches that are committed to my word. And I'm going to open the door for them, the door to real opportunity, not imagined opportunity. He flung open the door to the church at Philadelphia first because it was a church that held up his holy name. Second, because it was a church that kept his word. And thirdly, because it was a church that had learned to rely upon him. Notice the way he refers to himself as he introduces himself again. Third, he says, He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write these things, says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it, for you have little strength. There's a very rich history behind these words from the Old Testament, but time won't permit us today to go into that. On the other hand, I think that the point that the Lord is making here is pretty straightforward. In the Old Testament story, the key a person to open a door was a symbol of Messiah's authority. The authority here is clearly the authority to open the door leading to eternal opportunity and riches in Messiah's kingdom. It was also the authority to shut the door on that opportunity. To open and shut doors leading to opportunity and riches and privileges in the kingdom. And to shut down those who would want to ruin those privileges and those opportunities. As they were experiencing in Philadelphia by the Jews who claimed to be Jews who were not according to what Jesus says. The open door for this church at Philadelphia refers specifically, specifically to the fact that the Lord had uniquely prepared many people in other cities, especially on the high plateau beyond those mountains, those areas east of Philadelphia and western Turkey, to hear the truth of the gospel and to be receptive to the ministry of the word of God. And it was carried forth by people who made up the church of Philadelphia. What was our Lord saying to the church at Philadelphia was really not unlike what He said to the original 12 disciples when He quoted the Great Commission. It says in Jesus in Matthew 28, and Jesus came and spoke to these 12 disciples who had been with Him, saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and earth. I have the authority to unlock the opportunities and to shut down those who would oppose you. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. But why didn't he affirm this truth with the other seven, church, the other six churches of Revelation 2 and 3? Why did he single out the church at Philadelphia and emphasize that in their case he had used his authority to open a wide, wide door of eternal opportunity. Notice again verses 8 and 9, and especially how the last part of verse 9 reads. The angel of the church of Philadelphia write these things, says he who is holy, who is true, he who has the key of David, verse 8, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have little strength. On a human level, that seems to be backwards, doesn't it? It should be, I have set before you an open door because, humanly speaking, you have much strength, or you have great faith in yourself, or you have many people to really go out and do the job, or you have great connections, your connected church, or you have overwhelming power because of your wealth and influence. You can do it. But he didn't say that. He says, I'm opening the door because you have little strength which means you're going to have to rely upon me. And that's what his point was making. He was using his authority and power to open the door of eternal opportunity for this church and to shut down the opposition because this church couldn't do it by themselves. And they knew it. They had learned to rely upon him because they were not a very powerful church. They have nothing in themselves to draw upon or to take hold of for this opportunity. The only thing that they had was their dependence upon Him. Depending upon Him and His words and His promises and that He was more than able to do all, do beyond all that they could even think or believe. Humanly speaking, the church at Philadelphia had little strength. But what she did have was a heart to work and an unshakable belief that the Lord Jesus Christ would bless their work. They relied upon him. It was not the privileged church of Ephesus. It was not the powerful church at Pergamos. It was not the splendid church at Thyatira or the famous church at Sardis or the rich and influential church at Laodicea that God uses. Our Lord Jesus Christ chose to use and to reach peoples in the cities of the plateau and beyond through the church at Philadelphia through the people who made up the church of Philadelphia. The church that held up his holy name and stood apart from the world, even the Christian world of the day. A church that kept his word, a church that learned to rely upon him. This is the kind of church and the kind of people our Lord Jesus Christ seems especially ready to use. The kind of people for whom he will open doors, leading to opportunity, eternal opportunity. I want to close with an illustration that I think is rather powerful. It's moved me. never thought about it until I studied these passages some time ago. Let's suppose that you and I landed on this planet in the year of 1776, a little over 200 years ago. And our goal was to study the religious behavior of human beings living on this planet. And so we conduct our study, and when it comes to Christianity, one thing would be quickly revealed, and that is that it was basically a tribal religion of white people. Our study would quickly reveal that the religion called Christianity would have been basically a tribal religion of white people. Oh, yes, we would have found a few exceptions, a few Native Americans and. The New World uh, had become Christians. But overwhelmingly, there would have been no doubt that this was a religion for white Europeans. Now, let's suppose we come back in our spaceship again 200-plus years later in 2006. And we revisit our study of religion on planet Earth. And do you know what we would find when it comes to Christianity we would find that the church of Jesus Christ was truly a world religion. Not just the church, but the true church of Jesus Christ is filled with people from all over the world. People all over embrace Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, as the one they're looking to to deliver them one day into heaven. People all over the world who are Determined to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We would find that genuine Christianity is firmly established on every continent in the world. Among all peoples, all races, most people groups in the world. We would find that in 2006, the church of Jesus Christ, the genuine church... Of Jesus Christ, I'm speaking of, not just everyone that might even think, call themselves Christian, but those who believe that Jesus is their Savior, is still growing. And it's growing most of all in the southern continents of Africa and South America, as well as in Asia. And in fact, many of those churches, particularly in Asia, are sending peoples now back to the white Europeans in Europe with a message of the gospel and the truth of the word of God, which they, as a new generation, have never heard. What happened a little over 200 years ago that had not happened in all the other 1,700 years of church history? 1,700 years of church, church history, a white man's tribal religion To a person studying religion and not a very favorable picture either after about the third or fourth century. If you're comparing cultures. What happened? Some 200 years ago in 1776, besides the signing of the Declaration of Independence, What happened was, around that time, the Lord opened a door for the church at Philadelphia. A church that had rediscovered holiness and had recommitted itself to the Word of God. A church that had learned to rely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And from this church at Philadelphia, He raised up people like the Moravians and William Carey and Hudson Taylor and David Livingston and Judson, and a list of others leading all the way down to present-day Billy Graham. Special people the Lord used to open those doors for the church at Philadelphia to teach and minister the Word of God to cities on the plateau and beyond throughout the world. You see, in the first century, the church at Ephesus had fallen out of love. In the 2nd century, the church at Smyrna was just trying to survive. In the 3rd and 6th century, Pergamus was counting numbers. In the 7th to the 15th century, the church at Thyatira was busy fornicating. In the 16th and 17th century, Sardis was dead in traditionalism. But in the 18th century, down to the present day, the church of Philadelphia has been walking through an open door to minister to the Word of God to lost and needy people. And friends, he invites us as part of that church to join into the action. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father,